So we're back in the book of Haggai. This is our second message. This series title is called Consecrate Your Life. We want to give our lives wholeheartedly to the Lord. So we're going to spend some time in Haggai 1, verses 12 to 15. You might want to grab your Bible and find your way there. As you're finding your way there, I'll just make some preliminary remarks, and then we'll read that passage for you. Well, unless you like chili, which I happen to like, I think you'd probably agree with me that most foods don't generally taste as good when they are reheated, chili being the obvious exception. Chili always tastes better as, as a leftover when it's been reheated, but most foods, and we could, we could argue about this after church a little bit because there might be some disagreement about whether microwave pizza the next day tastes better than when you get it fresh in the box. I know there might be some differences of opinion on that, but by and large, I think most of us would say fresh food is the best food. Fresh food is the best food, with the exception of chili. It just tastes better the next day. And this is why when you have guests over, you generally don't feed them leftovers. If you have a wedding feast, a banquet, you, you generally don't break out the leftovers, scrape off the mold and put it on the plate. You serve your guests of your very, very best. You give your first fruits. You give that which is most valuable to you. Now think about this principle as it relates to the use of your life. Every one of us has 168 hours in every week. We all get the same number of hours in any week. Now let's suppose, and these are all good things that God wants us to participate in. Let's suppose we go to work for 40 hours. Many of us do. So you go to work for 48 hours and then you sleep for 56 hours, eight hours a night, seven nights of the week, you sleep for 56 hours. And then you spend, let's say, 20 hours cooking and traveling and sort of tidying up the house. How many hours do you have left once you have slept, performed your basic duties at work, cleaned the house, and made meals for your family? You still have, believe it or not, over 50 hours left in a given week, an entire work week at your disposal. How do you use your 50 hours that are not dedicated to traveling and cooking and cleaning and sleeping and eating? Well, God, of course, has called us to use our entire lives for his honor and glory. But God's not an impractical God. We're going to see that in this passage. God's not an impractical God. He doesn't expect you to be at church 168 hours a week doesn't expect you to be reading your Bible 168 hours a week. He wants you to get up and go to work. That's a creational command. He wants you to take time to rest. We have the Sabbath-keeping principle. He, he wants you to be able to adequately provide for your family, etc. But the problem is, is that in many a Christian's life, when they sort of go through their priorities, they tend to prioritize a lot of things above and beyond the things of God, worship, service, dedicated. I'm talking about dedicated worship, dedicated service to the Lord. God wants us to make him our priority every single day of the week by consecrating our lives to the king, our work to the king, our sleep to the king, our downtime time to the king, our eating habits to the king, but he also calls every believer 
to take some of their choice hours and dedicate it to worship and to service for his honor and his glory. So last week, when we started off in the book of Haggai, we learned that the setting was post-exile. So real quick biblical history, a couple key dates to remember. Israel was composed of 12 tribes, 11 of which had property, the 12th of which was sprinkled throughout the land, the, the priestly caste, the Levites. They were sprinkled throughout the land to lead the people of God in worship. So we have more or less 10-ish tribes in the north and two in the south, and the kingdom is divided after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, turns out to be a dimwit king and splits the nation in half. So we have essentially 10, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. They go through these cycles of obedience and disobedience to God. God's like, okay, you asked for it. I'm going to punish you. And he sends the Assyrians in. They invade the north. They take the 10 tribes into captivity in and around 722 BC. Well, the southern kingdom putters along for about another 150 years, but they kind of fall into the same trap. And so in and around 586, the Babylonians come in and they deport Judah and Benjamin into captivity for seven decades. Well, over time, God has compassion. They pray the prayers of repentance. Men like Ezekiel and Daniel show themselves to be faithful witnesses. And God stirs the heart of the Persian king and allows them to start to return to their land to resettle it and to rebuild it. So Haggai is what we call a post-exile, a post-exilic prophet. He's one of the writing prophets. Some of the prophets were just oral prophets. They just preached, they didn't write. But he prophesies and preaches to this band of believers that has returned to the promised land after 70 years of captivity in and around 520 BC. In fact, it was in August of 520 BC. And he says to them, this is just a recap of sermon number one, says to them, you're doing a lot of good things. You're planting your vineyards, you're getting your farms up to speed, and you're building your houses. In fact, you're building paneled houses, which are like fancy houses. But I notice you're not paying any attention whatsoever to rebuilding the temple. What's up? So it looks like you're, it's not like you're sinning. It's, I'm not seeing you steal and adulterate and lie. But your, your priorities seem a little lopsided. You know that 168 hours that we all get? I'm not seeing any of them consecrated to the things of God. Smarten up. So this is Haggai's message in the first part of chapter one. It's essentially a call to reprioritize their lives and to do what God expects, to assess, how am I using my life? How am I using my life? Now, here's what is, is pretty exciting about this passage. When the prophet confronts them, instead of being resistant making excuses, denying the issue, guess what they do? They obey. They're like, okay, Lord, we'll do it. 
So we read last week, verses 1 to 11. Now we're going to look at verse 12 to 15. This is a good news narrative. Reminds us what obedience looks like. Kind of reminds us what a consecrated life looks like. A well-prioritized life. So speaking about this subject of obedience, what does obedience look like? Well, the first thing we're going to learn is that it's unconditional. And that's what we should desire. Unconditional obedience. So we have a couple people that are introduced to us again. We have Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel. So he would have been the grandson of the king that lost the nation to the Babylonians. So he's the rightful heir to the throne, but he's not the, he's not the king at this point. He's just serving as governor. And then we have Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he's the spiritual representative over the people, representing the what we call the cultists, the, the spiritual system, the, the sacrificial system, the, the religious system that God had assigned for his people to follow. And then there's another group, and it's pretty all-encompassing, with all the remnant of the people. So how many people, if you take Zerubbabel, Jehozadak, and then all the people, how many people are included in this? Everybody. There's, there's nobody that's AWOL. Everybody responds to God. It says, And all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, notice emphasizing his authority as a prophetic figure, and the people feared the Lord. So what's wonderful about this is when the prophet preaches, everybody responds positively. The kingly heir responds positively. The high priest responds positively. Both the leader of the state and the leader of religious worship understand that they are not immune to God's decrees. The governor of the state and the leader of worship revere God and through the faithful preaching of Haggai the prophet, everybody decides, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to apply the sermon. We're actually going to live it out. We're not going to be hearers only, you know, the, the church nodders, the ameners. We're going to actually go out and do something. We're going to live obediently. We're not going to say, hey, good sermon, Haggai. Now, why don't you go build the temple? No, everybody shows up. Now, we're reminded here that God uses human vessels to accomplish his purposes. The Bible is very clear on this. Haggai was sent by God. This is a great reminder to us that God actually uses people to get his message out and to get his mission accomplished. Could we ask this question? Does he really need us? How many, week, how many hours does God have in his week? As many as he wants. Does God need you and I to accomplish his purposes? No, it's our privilege. It's our privilege, folks. But God uses us. So don't be so heavenly minded to be one of those Christians that whenever anything needs to get done in society, you're like, well, you know what I do? I'm just a prayer warrior. I just, I just hunker down in my prayer, prayer closet and I hope God goes and gets her done. No. Praying's important, obviously, because we're relying upon God's strength. But he has called us to be on mission. Not to pass the buck back to God, but called us to be on mission. God uses prophets to 
to preach his message to his people. This message is clearly not Haggai's message. It doesn't come from his own mental meanderings. It comes from God. He was sent by God. By the way, from Haggai's preaching, there's some lessons we need to consider with regard to biblical preaching. I've identified three. I think we need to be reminded of this, the power of biblical preaching. It's really important. Here's the first lesson. Preaching truth to power or preaching truth to compromise is uncomfortable, but it's necessary. So whether we're called to preach truth to power or to the average man that's living in compromise might be uncomfortable. It is kind of uncomfortable, but it's necessary. It's one of the tools that God uses to bring about reform in a sin-sick world. Secondly, we preach God's message, and because it's God's message, we never need to feel the need to apologize for it. How many of us, you don't need to put up your hands, but how many of us have had times where we, we see a sin or we see someone misbehaving and we're like, we should probably say something, but then there's that little check. It's like, oh man, that's going to be awkward. They're not going to like it. They might, they might misunderstand me. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it to Pastor Aaron. Hopefully he knows them too. <laughs> right? It's in all of us, but we needn't apologize for what God has said ever to ever apologize for what God has said. And again, it, the, one of the reasons for this is because God is good. This was, the, this was the fundamental quality or characteristic of God that was called into question in Genesis 3 when man fell into sin. Satan's on the woman. He's like, you know, did God really say? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know good from evil. Like he's, he's questioning the goodness of God. He's, he's trying to instill within the mind of the hearer this notion that God is a cosmic killjoy that he wants to make your life rough. There's all the pleasures of the world and God's like that, that prudish, you know, Victorian era schoolmaster. I don't want any of you laughing. I don't want any of you to have fun. Forget about pleasure. Discipline, discipline. No, that's not God. But this is the lie that the serpent seeks to plant within Eve's mind, that God is not good. And then you think, well, maybe he isn't good. Maybe he just arbitrarily came up with all these rules for us to live by. And I don't want to live by them. And frankly, I feel better when I don't. So when, when we question the goodness of God, we're less motivated to obey. When we question the goodness of God, we start to question whether God really even has our best interest in mind. But the cool thing is, is when we obey, on the other side of obedience, we're like, actually, that was good. I'm glad I did that. Or I'm glad I didn't say that. Or I'm glad I got rid of that addiction. God is good. So we preach the truth because God is good. We're not preaching to the, the, the sex-sick society and saying, whoa, our message for you is God is anti-pleasure. No, no. We look at their lifestyle and we're like, you're destroying yourselves. God's plan is better. God's plan is good. God's plan's honorable. 
Trust me, if you follow his plan, you won't regret it. That's why we preach against sexual sin. And of course, the other sins of our culture. But we're just thinking about that one because of Bill C4. And then here's the third encouraging message. God can use the faithfulness of one person to change a nation. One person. In this case, he didn't send eight prophets, 25 prophets, a whole collection of prophets. He sent one. And the prophet opened his mouth and he confronted everybody. The leader of the state, the leader of worship, the remnant. And God used one person to change the course of history. God can use you. And I believe for many of you, he already has. You may not see the full fruit. You may not see it as rapidly as Haggai. But when you're faithful, God's word never returns void. Never, never returns void. You know, I, I'm very aware. I think I have, I don't live in an ivory tower. I think I understand you. I think I understand our world a little bit. And I am aware that there is a spirit of despair that has settled upon many believers in our nation today. I know it. There's no question about it. A spirit of despair. As they look around at the world, they're like, now, depending on your personality and your background, you're going to respond in a certain way. And your response might not be the same as your spouse's response or my response, your best friend's response. But some of the common responses when we, when we find ourselves in despairing times is for some people, the first thing they do, they just get angry. And of course, we know there's righteous anger, but I'm talking about that bitterness, that crippling anger, that seething anger, that joyless anger, that non-redemptive anger, that non-productive anger. Some people just get angry and they stay angry and it doesn't help. For others, they just get depressed. They get bluesy, gloomy, pessimistic, can't imagine any way out. They might even think about ending their own lives. Just find themselves in a state of absolute despair. Others flee. They just run. Their natural response, there's a problem. I'm going to run. I'm going to run to my house. I'm going to run to an addiction. I'm going to run someplace. I'm just going to run. I get it. I just, the, the way out is to just get out. Others will just be silent. You know what? I'm just going to, I saw someone post on social media recently. You know, I just want to go into my house, my cozy house, and just read a book. I don't want to think about it. So it's like, I'm just going to deny that there's a problem. I'm just going to be silent. I'm just going to go about my daily schedule and, and pretend there are no issues. And then others will find themselves overthinking. Now, thinking is good, but overthinking is where you can't even get to sleep at night. You're just thinking about it during times you're supposed to be doing something else. You're supposed to be working, but you're thinking about it. You're supposed to be worshiping and you're thinking about it. You're supposed to be sleeping and you're, you're thinking about it. And your mind over time can't handle it. 
So you feel like your, your mind is sort of melting down, like something, something's not right. These are, these are common human responses to the challenging times we find ourselves in. Let me say this. If these things, so there's a place for anger. There's a place for anger. There, there's a place for silence. There's a place for fleeing. There's a place for kind of being upset. I mean, you look at the psalmist. The psalmists weren't afraid to express in words their bluesiness at the circumstances of the world. There's a time for these things. But if any of these things, folks, distract you from worship, they're sin. They become sinful. If these things distract you from worship, the service of God, if they rob you of your joy, they become sin. And then you know what? You've been defeated. You've been defeated. So we combat these things by continuing to worship. No matter what the circumstances are like, we will worship the Lord. No matter what the circumstances are, we will serve the Lord. And then we need some, a robust theology of suffering, to be reminded of suffering, that in our persecution, in our distress, in our despair, God is working. He's actually blessing you through it. He's blessing you. He's forcing you to take your eyes off of the things of this world and to set your eyes upon the things of God. In that respect, this is a great time to be a Christian because you can't be asleep at the wheel. You can't ignore the realities that are going on around you. These are blessings from the Lord. And therefore, we choose as the people of God to be faithful to the worship of God and faithful to the things of God, whither... It takes, in this case, 23 days for the people to respond or whether it takes 23 years or whether it takes 230 years, we will remain faithful to the things of God. And this, folks, is not something, it's not adequate just to hear these words. You have to make them your own, your resolve, and ask for God to give you the strength and the grace by his spirit to put them into practice. Here's what the people of God did when they were confronted. Don't, don't forget, they, they were building their panel houses, but they were in challenging times. They, they, they were not yet a free and clear nation. They were still under the edicts of the Persian king. There were still enemies all around them, looking through the walls at night, seeing when they can attack, lots of challenges, lots of, lots of difficulties. But the beauty of obedience is motivated by this. Did you see it? The people feared the Lord. In other words, they revered him. They worshiped him. They made him their, their number one priority. They feared the Lord. And this is what motivates us. There's not a shred of evidence in the text that there was any complaining, whining, hiding, making excuses, or running away. Instead, they decided to do what God had called them to do. So ask yourself, is your life as consecrated to the Lord as theirs became. Is, it, is there an area in your life where God has called you to serve him? I don't know what that might be, but you might know where God has called you to serve him, 
but you just haven't gotten around to it yet. You're actually open to it, but you just haven't gotten around to it yet because you're working overtime or because you signed up for yet a third hobby <laughs> or whatever your distractions might be. You've delayed answering a call to serve, to give, to teach. You know you should, and you want to, but you're too busy. At work, in the garden, in the academy, or emotionally, you're too busy. Some people are too busy emotionally. Too much worrying, too much anxiety, too much stress, too much fear. We see it in culture. There are folks that are doers, and their greatest threat to their spiritual walk is they, just, they want to do, 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 do. They do not feel comfortable, quiet, and peaceful before the Lord. And then there's others don't get anything done because they're always chewing on their fingernails, worried, stressed out, anxious, wondering what's going to happen next, terrified of the future. This is not redemptive. These things are never productive. We need to denounce them and set them aside. The time to serve the Lord is always now. Any delay is to disobey. Any delay is to disobey. Unconditional obedience is our sacred calling. Unconditional obedience. That's what God is calling us to. Make the application. Secondly, this is beautiful. God desires to bless obedience. Check out verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's three times in one short verse that the Lord comes up. By the way, Haggai's pattern, as you, as you move through Haggai, there's only two chapters, but there's several sermons he preaches. The pattern that you see in Haggai is he makes an accusation against the people of God. He confronts them. They then respond, and then God assures them. And that's the exact same pattern you'll see in your own life. God confronts us. When we respond, God's not just like, hmm. No, he comes and he assures us that we've done the right thing. This is what he does here. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. What does he say? Out of all the things he could say, he says this, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. This is one of life's greatest blessings, especially in tumultuous times. The blessing of God's presence. Not necessarily the blessing of a fix or a solution. That'd be nice. But the blessing of his presence. God doesn't always take the problem away. But God never abandons his people. The blessing of his presence. By the way, why would we not be aiming for that? Because that's our eternal eschatological hope. That's heaven's hope. It's to be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever and ever and to find within that presence absolute satisfaction. Think about this. God is so satisfying. This, this is where you have to turn the faith volume up because this even sounds a little odd when you actually process it a little bit. God's presence is so satisfying that you will be able to spend forever with God and never be bored with his company. 
Now, I don't care who you love the most in this world. Everybody needs a break from everybody else. We all need a little bit of a break. I don't want to see you 168 hours a week. Love you. I don't want to see you 168 hours a week. And you can barely put up with me, I know, for an hour. So we have affection for one another, but, you know, we need our time away. Somehow God is so wonderful and his presence is so satisfying that he will be able to satisfy us forever without end. And he wants to give us sort of uh, some pre-installments of that in the here and now. His presence really is a beautiful thing. The blessing of God's presence, which, by the way, assured them that all this effort they were putting into rebuilding the temple would pay off. Their enemies would be kept at bay. The Persian king would give them favor. The crops would continue to yield so they could feed their family. And in charge of all of this is the Lord. It says the Lord, the Lord's the Lord. He ties the messenger with the message to the Lord. By the way, this, it's verses like this that shape our view of the divine inspiration of Scripture. The divine inspiration of Scripture is this biblical notion that God actually inspires prophets and apostles to inscripturate divine revelation for our benefit. Now, there were written prophets like Haggai, and there were also a lot of oral prophets. There's no book of Elijah, but he preached a lot. And some of his messages are recorded in other books, but there's no book of Elijah. There were many other prophets that came and preached, but they never wrote. Haggai was one of the writing prophets. God inspired him. It's very clear in the text. This is not made up. This is not Haggai's opinion. He's writing for the Lord. God uses human beings to write. Interestingly, God uses human beings to write while not violating their writing style and their personalities. So even if you're in the Gospels, Luke writes differently than Mark. They have a different writing style. God oversees it to make sure every word that winds up on the page is what he wants, but he still uses the human personality, the, the, the cultural background, the, the linguistic skills. Some New Testament writers are more skilled in their ability to write Greek. God uses us too. He uses personality. He uses our story in our present-day ministry to accomplish things that are unique to us in our point in history, our time. And then God, of course, as I mentioned already, speaks through humans to communicate his message. And the result is we hear it. If we obey, we are blessed with his presence. So divine, the doctrine of divine inspiration, now, now we have a closed canon of scripture now. We have 66 books. We're not adding to it. So we have our library. We have our 66 books. We go to it. We just preach and re-preach and preach and re-preach and it never runs dry. There's, there's always lots to be talked about in God's word. But it takes the pressure off the messenger to make up his own message. This is why when you look at statism, totalitarianism, or false religions, they're all full of contradictions. Because it's just people making up their own stuff. So laws start to contradict laws, and public messaging starts to contradict something that's written, and something that's written contradicts some new initiative. It's, it's, all, it's all a hodgepodge. It's a mess. And it becomes increasingly messy when there's no standard to base law and truth on. But we have the word of God. And so the pressure's off. 
I've had a few people, there was a, a person this week that reached out to me. I don't, I don't know who they are, but they reached out to me and they just said some, maybe they saw, I think they saw a social media post and they just sort of said something to the effect of, thank you for saying this, but sometimes I feel like I'm crazy. Like, how do I actually know that what I'm trying to stand for is true? I mean, there's so many people that disagree with me. So think about this. How do you know that what you know and believe is true? You ever sit back and think, maybe I'm just misreading things. Maybe I'm seeing things that aren't there. How come it is that some people are so dogmatic and black and white about what's going on in our world that I'm, I'm, not, I'm starting to wonder, like, maybe I've been misreading the circumstances. Folks, let me bring clarity to this. This is not difficult. My response is essentially, look, start with what you absolutely know to be true. Just start with the basics. So here's a basic, which no Christian can possibly disagree with when I say it. They don't always practice it, but they can't disagree with it. The Lord Jesus Christ is the absolute and sole Lord over all of creation, over every principality, every power, every authority, and every throne. True or false? True. Well, if that's true, then 99% of the issues you'll experience in life have just been solved. So it's about authority. Everyone's jockeying for authority. Authority, authority. Well, if you're like, okay, I'm not sure about this issue. Oh, no, Christ is Lord over my body. Nobody tells me how to use my body apart from Christ. So that brings clarity to my decisions about how I use my body. When it comes to how we lead the church, it's just absolutely crystal clear. Christ is Lord over the worship and ministry of the church. So I'm not going to let anyone else who says they're my Lord interfere with that. It just brings clarity to things. And where do we get these notions from? From the Bible. We read the moral precepts of scripture. Is adultery right or wrong? You tell me, right or wrong? Are there any exceptions to that? No, it's wrong. So if someone comes and says, well, you know, yeah, but I have some gray areas. You know, there's, you don't understand my past, my circumstances, my, my inclinations, you know, look, you can talk all you want, but there's right and there's wrong. So I can speak into that issue. So as we study God's word, yeah, there's some things that are not as clear. Christians disagree on head coverings, foot washings, and whether the holy kiss is literal. But the absolute lordship of Christ over creation and life in this church, there's nothing ambiguous about that. So when you nail down those foundational beliefs and principles, you literally are able to deal with almost anything the world can throw at you. Just brings clarity. Then you know, no, I'm not a nut. I'm actually standing for the things of God. You can never go wrong obeying God and God will never fail to bless you as a result. Third, and I think this is clear already, but we haven't actually read it. Obedience manifests itself in action. So again, so first of all, I I actually enjoy people expressing themselves in church. They're like, amen, or nodding, or yeah, yeah. But that's not enough. So when we hear God's word preached, it's not like, preach it, brother. 
And then you go and you don't, don't obey it. No, no, we need to put it into action. So obedience manifests itself in action. Listen to this, verse 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the heart, the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. So he's stirring them all up. So God is moving. That's interesting because even in our doctrine of sanctification, it's we're obeying, but God is stirring. It's a both and, it's synergistic. That's not true of our salvation, our justification. That's monergistic. That's just God doing his thing. But when it comes to obedience, God is stirring and we're obeying. So that's a little tidbit there to kind of throw into your doctrine of sanctification. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. There's a repetition of that name, meaning the Lord all-powerful. Their God, so that's personalized. Their God, the date is given on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So this is important. First of all, the leaders are stirred. Literally, that means he roused them awake because they were spiritually sleepy. So he roused them awake. To not be stirred by God, by the way, is to be asleep to the spiritual realities of our world and to God's purpose for you. There's a lot of Christians that need to be roused to wake up. And we're roused, by the way, through preaching, through prayer, through worship, through disciplines, through reading. We're roused. Being awake to the realities of your world and your responsibilities are really, really important. When I was a younger man, kind of through my teen years and probably even to my mid-20s, like probably every other guy in the room, you could drive a freight train through my bedroom and I would not wake up. I would just sleep so deeply. And I remember when I was younger thinking, I would, I would like envy people who just have the ability to wake up. I thought, oh, it's so hard waking up. Like I, I don't care how long I sleep. I just always, just that, that act of waking up. It's just, oh, I feel like I'm dying. Oh, oh, I'm awake. And then when you're awake, you like being awake, but there's just that, oh, that's painful, like waking up. And then you start having kids. And if you're a parent, something changes in you. And when you hear the cry of a newborn baby, it's hard to ignore. Now, Full admission, when I heard the cry of a newborn baby, I didn't get up. My wife did that. So all, all credit to her. But I would still wake up. And why do you wake up even when you're tired, when you hear the sound of a newborn baby? Because you have an innate knowledge of your responsibility and that child's vulnerability. And how irresponsible would it be to say, I'm just going to let them cry. There could be a problem. So your sense of responsibility wakes you up. One of the fun things about getting older is it's much easier to wake up, by the way. So if you're younger, that's one of the benefits of getting older. You just kind of just wake up. Hey, I'm ready to go, right? It's, it's, it's good. I really, I, it's one of my, the blessings of being on the older side of the halfway mark, so to speak, in life. Well, when God stirs us, it's based upon the same thing. He rouses us to our sense of responsibility, to our mission, to our call. He stirs the remnant. He stirs the, king, the kingly heir. He stirs the religious leaders. 
He stirs everybody. Now, the, the religious leaders are sort of behind it. You know, unity in churches is often because church leaders are stirring people up. They're stirring people up. It's not like everybody ran off to do their own thing. Notice they all were stirred by the preaching of the prophet and they all did the same thing. They weren't all stirred. Well, the Lord called me to Zimbabwe. Oh, really? Who affirmed your call? It's just me and Jesus. We just kind of affirmed it together. Uh, the Lord stirred me to plant my own church. The Lord stirred me to start my soup kitchen. Like, I'm not opposed to these things, but there tends to be a hyper-independent mindset in the Christian church today that has this, well, everybody has their own call and they're in no way, shape, or form linked. Look, throughout history, God has more often than not stirred whole collections of his people, church or Israel, to go and accomplish great purposes for him. So there's something in that for us to consider. We're all ministers. We're all important. We all have something to offer, but we're being stirred by our leaders to get on mission with God. And what could be more stirring than calling people to join in a project that would lead God's people in the worship of God? The mission of God is the glory of God. God didn't create you because, well, he just wanted to give you a good and friendly life. God created you. I mean, you're going to enjoy the life that he created for you if you live it properly and productively, but God created you for his honor and glory. So he stirs the people to get on board, to build, to rebuild a temple that would ultimately position people to worship him. And he's a personal God. Did you see that in verse 14? He's their God. He's the Lord of hosts. That's a wonderful bringing together of two concepts. He's their God and he's the Lord of hosts. So let's talk about the Lord of hosts. He is above and beyond. He's all powerful. He's the Lord of heaven's armies. It's like, whoa, I don't want to mess with him. But at the same time, he's our God. He's up close. He's personal. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We hold this in, in balance as Christians both the fact that he is the Lord of hosts and he is our God. He is powerful, but he's personal. He is to be feared, but he can also be approached. One doesn't exclude the other. God can crush us, but he loves us. God judges us, but he also redeems us. God hates our sin, but he also loves us. Both attributes demand worship and awe. You need to hear this in preaching and you need to hear it in good Christian worship. Lord of hosts language and he's our God language. It's a both and. You have to pick one or the other. It's a both and. Now we have here a little piece of information that I think is worth dwelling on. So there's a date given. And if you look at the date that they actually showed up to build the temple, and then you cross-reference that to the date at the beginning of the book and you count the number of days from the date of the sermon to the date of their response is 23 days. 23 days. Now, what you don't want to read into that is that there was 23 days of disobedience. There's no indication of that in the text. It's not 23 days of disobedience. But I think, in actual fact, there's a couple things for us to consider. One, that's actually a pretty impressive turnaround time for an entire nation to be roused to participate in a project. That's actually pretty impressive. You know, you can't get a road built 
without months and months and months of consulting and thinking and conversing and budgeting and on and on and on. This was a big infrastructure project, but in 23 days, they were there with their, you know, their, their hammers and shovels. So it's pretty impressive. But if you track the date, it's also right around the time of harvest. They're literally pulling grain off the field right in this time. So I think that what God is communicating here is that he's also a practical God. The message is not the super spiritual message. You know what God wants you to do, folks? Every one of you wants you to quit your job this week and just be at church 168 hours. It's not, how dare you go through a, dry, uh, uh, a gas station to fill up your car? That's a waste of time. You should be using that praying. Or how, how dare you actually spend time in the kitchen making good meals for your family? That's a, that's a waste of time. God's not an impractical God. He doesn't say tear down the paneled houses. He doesn't say let the harvest rot in the field. He doesn't say abandon your children, ditch your wife in order to build the temple. There's nothing derogatory or accusatory or shameful about these. It's just general responsibilities that we have. It's okay going to work. It's okay hoeing your garden and reaping the benefits of your labor. But there also needs to be some expediency about serving the Lord. In fact, from a Christian worldview, we also have to be careful not to bifurcate or divide the sacred from the quote-unquote secular. From a Christian perspective, every day is the Lord's day, but we also set aside a day for worship. From a Christian perspective, your ministry in the church, at the church, is sacred, but so is your employment. If you serve as unto the Lord, that's a sacred thing. The way you shovel snow, the way you fill out paperwork, the way you do your banking, the way you tend to your family, the way you cook, the way you clean, the way you participate in athletics, all of these things can bring honor and glory to the Lord. But there also needs to be places in our lives for dedicated, uninterrupted time for, for, and with the Lord. Now, some of you like the for better than the with, and some of you like the with better than the for. So depending on how you're wired, you're like, I like to work for God. So I I like to be just really busy in the church. I like to be busy in ministry. Busy, 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 busy. Being with God, that makes me uncomfortable. How's your quiet time? I don't really have any. I'm just serving more. And then others just like to be with God. They're just meditating, reading, reflecting, you know, camp, the, the, the gas stove's on, they're having a cup of coffee, they're just reading the Bible all day long, but they're not necessarily serving. It has to be both. We need time for God and with God, serving him and also those times of solitude and worship. Both of them are super, super important. So folks, having heard this message, will you respond as The high priest responded, the kingly heir responded, and the remnant of old responded. Perhaps a good little exercise, if you'd like to do it, is just take a piece of paper this week, write 168 on the top, and just sort of go down and evaluate and assess how you do use your week. How many hours do I actually spend traveling at work, eating, sleeping? You'll probably be surprised how many hours you actually have for dedicated, conscientious 
service to the Lord. Not as your leftovers, not as your leftovers because God is okay with you doing these other things as part and parcel of your responsibility. But have you dedicated your life to the service and ministry of the Lord? A lot of people, I'm so busy, really? You watch a movie like every night. I'm so busy, really? Do you need to be on the rink five times a week? Really? I'm so busy, you know, and and you, you assess their schedule and it's just because they've filled it up with all kinds of stuff. We all have the same number of hours. We all have the exact same number of hours. And it's not a bad idea every once in a while to assess our lives and to ask, how am I using my life? How can I use my life more obediently? Am I using my life for the purpose and glory of the Lord of hosts, who is also my God? 